Welcome everyone to the Arthroscopy Association's Arthroscopy Journal podcast. I'm Dr. Andrea Spiker from the University of Wisconsin. Today I have the pleasure of being joined by Dr. Stephanie Wong, who is a sports medicine surgeon at the University of California, San Francisco. Dr. Wong was the first author of the article titled, Patients with a High Femoral Epiphyseal Roof with Concomitant Borderline Hip Dysplasia and Femoral Acetabular Impingement Syndrome do not demonstrate inferior outcomes following arthroscopic hip surgery, which was published in the May 2022 edition of the Arthroscopy Journal. Dr. Wong's co-authors included Alexander Newhouse, Daniel Wickman, Felipe Besse, Joel Williams, and Shane No. Welcome, Dr. Wong, and thank you so much for joining me. Thanks so much for having me. Um, I'm an avid listener of the podcast, so it's um, wonderful to be invited on as a guest. We're so glad to have you. So Stephanie, can you begin by telling us a little bit more about you and your current practice? Yeah, absolutely. So currently, I'm a sports medicine surgeon at UCSF, as you mentioned, um, and my practice involves general sports medicine, um, as well as a focus on hips. So I do both um, endoscopic, uh, arthroscopic, and um, a, some limited open hip procedures. So I probably would estimate my practice involves about 30 to 40% hip. I do not do open hip surgeries for dysplasia, such as PAOs or uh, total hip arthroplasty, but um, my practice does involve a significant proportion of hip, hip arthroscopy for FAI, um, as well as uh, treatment of borderline hip dysplasia. And then we also have a hip preservation center where I collaborate with one of my colleagues who treats uh, pediatric and adult patients with hip dysplasia. So we do combined hip arthroscopy procedures with um, periacetabular osteotomies um, as a part of that center. Wonderful. So the paper we're discussing today looked specifically at that group of patients that you mentioned undergoing hip arthroscopy and uh, in particular the borderline dysplastic group which uh, most of us define as a center edge angle between 18 and 25 degrees. So can you discuss with us why this is such an important group to study? Yeah, absolutely. So I think that, you know, it's well accepted that patients that are clearly dysplastic, so those that have a lateral center edge angle, um, you know, in the teens or in, you know, the tens range, um, clearly do not qualify for an uh, isolated arthroscopic hip procedure. Um, And then those that have more of a femoroacetabular impingement picture with a lateral center edge angle above 25, um, I think many of us are comfortable treating those patients um, as straightforward FAI. But then we have this group that's kind of in this gray zone, kind of in between, which we've termed borderline um, dysplastic, where they sometimes have some mixed features. And I find that some of those patients, again, we kind of classify this borderline group primarily based on lateral center edge, but I'm sure we'll get into, you know, what other measures we we look at when we consider this condition. But some of them are clearly more of an FAI picture, and some of them are, you know, maybe FAI mixed with dysplasia, and some are more kind of pure dysplasia type pictures. Um, and so I think that, you know, we're, we're trying to understand which of these patients would benefit from which of our surgical procedures or, or you know, a combination of both arthroscopic and open hip procedures. And, you know, the studies have been really interesting because some studies show you know, no significant difference when treating these borderline patients with FAI kind of syndrome, kind of clinical picture um, with a just classic hip arthroscopy approach. And then some show worse outcomes. Um, and some authors suggest more of a open uh, surgical procedure with a hip arthroscopy combined instead and so we have these kind of two different schools of thought you know the hip preservation world with the sports medicine world kind of you know colliding here in the middle and so 
um, I think really we just like to be able to understand how to counsel patients and how to talk to them about which procedures they benefit from. Excellent. Yeah, I think you've really clearly described the problem with this group of patients is there's a lot of conflicting information and we really don't know the right answer in a lot of instances. And so uh, more and more of studies like the one we are discussing today are so important to help us clarify that question a little bit more and perhaps make that gray area a little bit more black and white for us in the Mm -hmm. future. Exactly. So let's talk a little more about the specific research question that you asked in this study related to the femoral epiphyseal roof or fear index. So first, can you describe for the listeners how this is measured on radiographs and then discuss why you decided to look at this specific radiographic measurement? Absolutely. So the fear index was uh, first described by Wyatt et al. um, and their paper out of CORE 2017. And they um, described this novel radiographic measurement um, as an additional measurement that you could consider in addition to the lateral center edge, which we've been discussing. Um, And this measurement is based on um, the theory that during development that the femoral epiphysis orientation is perpendicular to the joint reactive force. So the angle of it would change depending on kind of the depth of the acetabulum um, and the force vector for the hip. So this measurement basically is the angle between the epiphyseal plate in a skeletally mature individual and the acetabular index angle or the you know angle of the source seal. Um, and this vector would indicate then the stability of the hip. So if it was more open laterally, then that would be considered an unstable hip. And then if it was kind of closed and open medially, then it would indicate um, a stable hip. And so, um, you know, in the past few years, um, you know, other authors have been looking into you know, the fear index as another measurement to try to assess these borderline dysplastic hips. Um, because the thought is that the lateral center edge, while good, it's really just kind of one dimension of a three-dimensional problem. And um, so most of us are using, you know, primarily radiographs initially um, to try to understand this complex three-dimensional problem. Um, and so this would be a measurement that's taken off of an AP pelvis. And so based on existing imaging um, and just another kind of piece of a puzzle, I think. Great. That was an excellent description of how to do this. Um, and so speaking of the fear index, how was the inter-rater reliability within your study when measuring this? So how good are different surgeons or trainees at measuring this index? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So so in this study, we had two trained research assistants, as well as Dr. Bessa, who's an orthopedic surgeon, um, measure these indices. And then we also had them measure the lateral center edge angle and the tonus angle. So interestingly, the inner observer interclass correlation coefficient was actually better for the fear index than for the lateral center edge and tonus angle, which was a little bit surprising, um, especially because this is one of kind of a a newer measurement that maybe, um, you know, people aren't as used to doing. Um, But overall, in in our study, the um, inter-observer correlation coefficient was 0.96, and greater than 0.9 is considered excellent. Um, and so this has also been shown in some other studies um, on the fear index, overall showing, you know, good to excellent reliability testing. Um, so I think overall, this measurement is relatively straightforward to do. 
um, and it seems to be reproducible. Great. And so you and your study used a fear index of plus or minus two degrees to create your various patient cohorts. So how did your team decide to uh, settle on this number of degrees as um, the differential between the different cohorts? Yeah, that's a great question. I think anytime you have a, a new measurement, it's kind of like, what is the threshold or what, what should we be defining as you know normal or abnormal? So actually in the um, original Wyatt paper, they had actually used a threshold of five degrees. Um, and then subsequent studies have used five degrees and some have, um, you know, lowered that to two degrees. So we selected two degrees because we thought it would be a bit more sensitive um, and include a couple more of those patients that might be, you know, kind of in between the stable versus unstable groups. I think that, you know, the studies that are on the fear index are, you know, just a couple in the literature at this point. So, you know, one of the, one of my thoughts was that actually, you know, we could consider trying to understand, you know, the threshold for the fear index a little bit more closely, because really five degrees has been mentioned in most studies. And then, you know, one or two other studies, you know, discussing, considering two or five. Um, and so I think that's how we selected, you know, our threshold or cutoff in this, in this study, um, but certainly kind of still in its early age, uh, early stages of, of research certainly in this topic. Yeah, that's a great point about this being a a newer index. And I I guess, would you mind clarifying for us when we talk about the two degrees or the five degrees, um, what we're talking about, it's the, it's the, uh, whether the, the angle converges or diverges greater or less than that. Can you just describe that a little bit more? Yes, yes, absolutely. So um, as I mentioned before, essentially this angle is the line between the center third of the femoral epiphyseal scar and then the second line being connecting the lateral and medial aspects of the source seal. So you do basically the cob angle between those two lines um, and a line that opens laterally is defined as a positive angle, which would indicate an unstable hip. And then a line that opens, uh, angle that opens medially would be defined as um, a negative value or a stable hip. So a fear index in our study of less than two degrees was considered to be a stable hip. And a fear index of greater than or equal to two degrees was considered an unstable hip. And I would argue that, you know, using that two degree threshold, you're actually being more selective. So, Mm -hmm. you know, lower threshold to define what would be an unstable hip. So uh, perhaps, you know, a little bit more stringent in looking at those uh, borderlines and and giving us a better idea of who might or might not do well with arthroscopy. Exactly, exactly. And so, you know, in this study, we took a cohort of patients who had already had surgery and had two-year outcomes and then went back and analyzed, you know, their their fear. And because patients were, you know, had surgery in the study, had you know, surgery before the fear index was described measure. Um, yeah, but I think that, you know, the thought is, can we use this as a predictive tool or can we use this as a piece of, um, you know, information to guide patients, you know, prospectively in the future, which, you know, has has not yet been done, but would be definitely an, um, an idea for kind of future study. So the study also concluded at the end of the uh, findings that these patients with a fear index of greater than two degrees, so those that were defined as unstable hips, uh, mm-hmm. did not 
actually demonstrate inferior outcomes following hip arthroscopy. But you did note in the manuscript that there was one big limitation in validating this conclusion in that the group of patients who did have that fear index greater than two was really a small number of patients uh, when, when compared to the cohort, which was considered to be stable. And that makes sense. This, you know, the, the surgery, these patients were being indicated for arthroscopy only, and we wouldn't expect to find a high number of what we would consider dysplastic hips because um, those would hopefully have gone on to have an open uh, periostabular osteotomy surgery. Right. Um, so you mentioned in your paper, you know, the possibility because there was a, an uneven balance between the, you know, unstable hips and the stable hips, that there might have been possible type one and or type two errors. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I'd just love to get your thoughts on that and, and what your team thought about what you think about the limitations of studies like this when we're looking to answer these questions. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, as you mentioned, we had, um, you know, quite asymmetric group. So out of 140 patients that met the inclusion criteria, um, we had 19 that we considered to be unstable based on the fear index threshold of greater than or equal to two, and then 121 patients who were considered stable. So, you know, of course you could say, what if there were more patients in the unstable group? Would we see a difference in the outcomes there? Um, And that is possible. You know, I think that, you know, of course, in our paper, we concluded that there was no difference. Um, it's, It's possible that, you know, perhaps we just didn't have the numbers to show that. But I think that's where, you know, one thing is in the hip literature, we see a lot of studies done kind of like, for example, this one done by one of my fellowship mentors, she know, um, you know, single surgeon, large volume surgeon study, which is fantastic. Um, but I think this is one area where, you know, perhaps if we were able to combine high volume centers, um, multi-center studies with multiple surgeons, we could reach, you know, the end needed to kind of reinforce these conclusions that we have for these preliminary studies. Um, but this is the only paper, to my knowledge, that looks at outcomes in the setting of fear index. A lot of a couple other studies looking at, um, you know, validating the fear index, associating fear index measurements with measures of clinical and or you know exam under anesthesia instability measurements. But I think this is a good preliminary study looking at, um, you know, the outcomes between these two groups. But but certainly you bring up a fantastic point, um, and I think you know collaboration between high volume hip centers and um, centers that treat hip dysplasia, I think, um, would be great to, to try to see if our results here hold up. Yeah, that's an excellent point. Now, what are some of the other indicators that you find helpful in your practice to identify this hip instability in this group of patients, you know, the borderline group of patients who you're not sure would benefit from a hip arthroscopy versus a, a periacetabular osteotomy? You know, what are some of the mm-hmm. um, clinical and perhaps radiographic tools that you're using? Yeah, absolutely. So similar to other three-dimensional complex problems, for example, like patellofemoral instability or shoulder instability, I think of hip instability similarly. So I'm trying to measure every possible thing I can on radiographs to try to put all those factors together to treat kind of that individual patient. So for me, I'm measuring, you know, the lateral center edge. I also routinely get a false profile view to to measure the anterior coverage or anterior center edge angle, tonus angle, um, the fear index. I've started to use in my clinical practice as well. Um, And then I rarely, you know, obtain CT scans, but that is 
something that could certainly be considered to look more at the three-dimensional morphology, femoral version, um, and get a better understanding of the, you know, acetabular, acetabulum in, in three dimensions. But essentially, I'm getting three views of the pelvis and, you know, measuring everything I possibly can, looking at retroversion, um, et cetera, on the radiographs as well, um, to try to understand the patient. And then on clinical exam, you know, I pay attention to other factors, including, you know, hypermobility, you know, the Dayton score, um, the activities a patient, um, you know, participates in. So are they in an activity or sport that requires, um, you know, a lot of kind of hyperflexibility? Are they a dancer, ballerina, gymnast? Um, things like that play a role um, in kind of how I think about each individual patient. But yeah, I don't think there's one perfect answer. I think we all do it a little bit differently. That's kind of my approach. Yeah, no, I, I absolutely agree with you. I think there's there's no one right way to do it. And unfortunately, that means, especially, you know, I think hip patients in general, as we know, come into our clinic and there are just, there are a lot more in-depth evaluation of, of the clinical exam, of the radiographic findings in order to make a diagnosis. But then especially in this borderline group, it's it's perhaps yet another layer of investigation that we have to perform in order to understand what the best treatment options would be. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So how do you think the findings of this study have influenced your practice? Yeah, I think when you look at the, you know, abstract of this study, you know, you could easily conclude, you know, that you should operate on patients with borderline hip dysplasia. But I think, you know, I think it's much more nuanced than that. Um, so I think about the results of the study kind of in the context of also kind of, you know, my mentor, Shane knows, kind of practice. So, you know, his management of the capsule, for example, I think is extremely important. And so, you know, he routinely does a T-capsulotomy and then closes it with, you know, five to six um, simple sutures. And I think that, you know, if you were to take the outcome, you know, the outcome of the study and apply it to borderline patients and do a different type of capsulotomy or not close a capsule, et cetera, I think it, you know, it would potentially change, um, you know, the results. And so I think very carefully about borderline patients. Um, and I actually, which is a little bit of a departure from, you know, the inclusion group of this study, but I think of borderline patients because I do, you know, primarily hip arthroscopy in my practice, you know, alternative cutoffs have been mentioned for considering the borderline group, including a lateral synergy between 20 to 25. So I'm a little bit more strict because um, as I start my practice, um, you know, I'm, I'm trying to make sure the patients that I'm operating on have really excellent outcomes. And I'm also kind of refining my own technique and my being comfortable with my own practice. So I'm using a lateral center edge closer to 20 to 25. Um, if they're dipping, you know, to the 18, 19 range, um, and we're looking at all their other, you know, radiographic measures, if their tonus angles above 10 and, you know, they have hypermobility and, you know, their anterior coverage is also, you know, low, then, you know, those are patients that I'm saying, you know, you should also maybe see my hip preservation colleague who does PAO just to at least have a conversation and talk about it. Um, of course, you know, a PAO is a much, you know, higher, you know, morbidity open procedure compared to an isolated hip arthroscopy. But I think that we'd all agree that we, you know, ultimately just want to do what's going to be the best outcome for the patient, whether it's a combined procedure or an isolated one. You bring up such an excellent point about 
scrutiny of, of all of our publications in the literature, you know, these, um, you really do have to put that in context. And I think you bring up an excellent point about understanding the other procedural and technical aspects that are happening in order to make these outcomes um, and the findings happen. So that that's, you know, an excellent, excellent point that you bring up there. Now, to end our conversation today, uh, you know, I'd love to hear based on your experience with this current study, as well as your, your current experience and practice, you know, where do you think we should take this research on borderline dysplasia next to get more answers? Yeah, I think that, you know, one thing that would be really interesting to develop would be some sort of risk calculator. So similar to, you know, these risk calculators for patients at risk of hip fracture and things like that, where you can input their age and their history fracture, et cetera. You know, I think it would be really nice to have something like that for this group of borderline dysplastic patients. Maybe you can enter their you know, various radiographic measures, which we've discussed, um, as well as maybe some clinical exam findings um, to be able to say, you know, what is the likelihood that their hip is, you know, stable or unstable? And then I guess, you know, you'd have to decide how are you defining stable or unstable? So in a lot of, you know, the literature, there's various definitions. There's stability on, you know, clinical exam, there's stability post-operatively on clinical exam and pre-op, and then stability intraoperatively on EUA before the surgery is done, after the surgery is done, and then, of course, um, you know, ultimately the patient outcomes. So I think, you know, we haven't necessarily agreed on how we determine stability, and I think that maybe is one of the main points that we need to decide. Um, you know, obviously in this study, we, we use a fear index cutoff of two, um, but you know, that definition changes um, for many, and it's probably not, you know, one radiographic measurement that's going to determine stability or not. So I think it'd be nice, though, to have, you know, some sort of calculator where, you know, you could go through it with a patient um, and say, you know, similar to calculators available for, like, choosing an ACL graft, you know, what, you know, what would you benefit from, um, you know, X percent chance that the hip is stable or unstable, and, you know, data suggests that you, know, you should have an isolated hip arthroscopy procedure or a combined procedure with open. So I think that would be really interesting. And then, you know, like I said, trying to combine, you know, or pool our data um, in the hip arthroscopy world to look at, you know, different surgeons, different centers, um, high volume surgeons, but that maybe manage the capsule differently um, and see if any of those factors kind of stratify out. But of course, you know, you introduce all these variables, it does make it a little bit more difficult, difficult to study. Um, but I think that ultimately, it's a complicated problem. So it's not going to be one straightforward, you know, radiographic measurement to explain it. Yeah, those are all excellent ideas. We have a lot of work to do, don't we? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Um, but I think, you know, the the hip arthroscopy and um, hip preservation world is a smaller one. So I think definitely, you know, achievable potentially. And I think there's a lot of interest in, you know, identifying which patients would benefit from which procedures. Well, thank you so much, Stephanie, uh, for joining us today. It's been wonderful talking with you and, and hearing about this uh, article and your findings. Thank you so much for having me. Dr. Wong's article titled Patients with a High Femoral Epiphyseal Roof with Concomitant Borderline to Hip Dysplasia and Femoral Acetabular Impingement Syndrome Do Not Demonstrate Inferior Outcomes Following Arthroscopic Hip Surgery 
can be found online at www.arthroscopyjournal.org. This concludes our episode of the Arthroscopy Journal podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. The views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of the Arthroscopy Association or the Arthroscopy Journal. 